Romans 9. And then if we could, uh, if you'd like to read along, we'll read together the words of our Confession of Faith, Article 16. That's on page 77, the back of our blue hymnal. I'll read the passage of Scripture first. I ended up including, really, the three additional verses tacked on to the end of what's printed in our bulletin as I was writing this. So I'll read through verse 21. Romans 9, verses 1 through 21. God's holy word given to us for our good. Let us give our attention to its reading. The Apostle Paul writes these words. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all forever praised amen it is not as though the word that it is not as though god's word had failed for not all who are descended from israel are israel nor because they are his descendants are they all abraham's children on the contrary it is through isaac that your offspring will be reckoned in other words it is not the natural children who are god's children but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as abraham's offspring For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand. Not by works, but by him who calls, she was told. The older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved... But Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up. For this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? Grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. Article 16. This is a short article relative to some of the ones we had covered going back a few months. Towards the beginning of the summer. So let's read this together 
these words on eternal election, Article 16 of our Confession of Faith. We believe that all the posterity of Adam, being thus fallen into perdition and ruin by the sin of our first parents, God then did manifest himself such as he is, that is to say, merciful and just, merciful since he delivers and preserves from this perdition all whom he, in his eternal and unchangeable counsel of mere goodness, has elected in Christ Jesus our Lord, without any respect to their works, just in leaving others in the fall and perdition wherein they have involved themselves. As we see in in the words of our confession, it's perhaps in the doctrine of election that we see most clearly in, in the works of God, the attributes of God, most clearly as we see in election, as we see God's glory and his sovereignty from beginning to end, we see the character of God on display. God shows himself as he is, as we consider the doctrine of election. And that is that he is a God who is completely sovereign, he is completely just, and he is completely merciful. It's a doctrine that's clear in scripture, but a doctrine that is contested by many, debated by others. For many, the idea that God is sovereign over the most important choice, choice that someone can ever make, what you do with Jesus, grates against their sensibilities. Well, if if God is sovereign over where people go on the question of Jesus, then I don't know if I want to believe in that kind of a God. And why is that? Well, as we've been thinking about recently as it's come up in in the Gospel of Luke, as we've been thinking recently about the sermon series that we did uh, in the evenings, uh, dealing with various contemporary issues, and really what we saw, the, 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 the center of the problem is the way in which our world, which perhaps isn't that much different than the world that was introduced in Genesis 3, but in our world, people want to think of themselves as sovereign. The self is sovereign. I'm the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. We want to be loosed from all external constraints, whether that is God or the past or a religious authority or a civil authority or any authority at all. We want to be completely free and able to determine what's right for us and what's the best path for us to take. I was reminded sort of a funny way of the sovereign self this past week. I'm a sports fan, so oftentimes those are the illustrations and examples I use, so pardon me for that. But there was a player who quit on his team and retired at halftime during a game last week. Apparently he had had enough And uh, he, at halftime, took off his uniform, put on his street clothes, left the stadium, and he was done. His teammates were understandably very upset. If you've ever been a part of a a team, you know how important it is. People take it very seriously. You don't want to let your teammates down. You want to be there for them. And after the game, some of his teammates had some things to say about what they thought of what he had done. 
And it seems as if he, he began to realize in the coming days that this probably wasn't going to reflect well on him. So what does he do? He decides to play the ultimate trump card in any situation today, which is the sovereign self. So his statement that he released, I'll paraphrase, paraphrase went something like this. By quitting in the way that I did, I meant no disrespect to my teammates. I also meant them no ill will, didn't mean to hang them out to dry. But I realized that this was no longer something my heart was into. And I needed to leave the game at that time for me. It was the right thing to do for me at that time. I was following my heart. Appeal to the sovereign self. What can anybody in today's world say to that? This is what I felt was right for me to do. We want to be free. We demand to be free from all the things that would entangle the self. Uh, This mindset, of course, as we try to remind ourselves time and time again here in this room, this mindset falls flat amidst the realization that the self itself is constrained. The self itself gets entangled. Though we live as though we are free from external entanglements, the ugliness of who we are on the inside still gets us tangled in a web of destruction. So to be free from all things except yourself is still to be enslaved. To be free from all things except yourself is still to be enslaved. True freedom consists in belonging to the God who has made you, in serving the God who has made you, that you might be able to live for him freely, for that is our purpose, that is why we were created. We weren't created to be free from every external constraint, we we were created to serve the living God. When we begin to think that way, when we have our, our minds wired around those realities, we will be more open to these truths that we find in Scripture that not only has God created us to serve Him and to glorify Him, but also we needed that same God to be involved in the process of our redemption even from eternity past. We needed Him to intervene. We needed His help. And when we see the doctrine of election, all of this comes to the four. We turn then to Romans chapter 9 and the words of our confession to consider this central doctrine, certainly central to the Reformed faith and such a huge part of what we find in Scripture. Paul contemplates his own people, the Jews, in Romans 9. And what is the problem as he's considering his people? Though they were the covenant people of God, though they had truly received God's word, though they had been given the, the, the covenants and the temple worship and all these things that uh, joined them to the living God, they had rejected the Messiah to whom all of the scripture had pointed. It was all pointing to Jesus. It was all leading to Jesus. Jesus says in the Gospels, go and read Moses, for it is there that you will read of me, for he wrote of me. The law and the prophets testify of me. Luke chapter 16, uh, the, the, the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man is begging for people to go and evangelize his family. And, Jesus, and as he appeals to Abraham, he's speaking to the beings in heaven. He hears back that they have Moses and the prophets. If they do not believe because of Moses and the prophets, they will not believe even if they see someone who rises from the dead. So this is a problem that they have rejected the Messiah. Israel has rejected the Messiah because what is it that God had promised Abraham? That, that the people that come forth from him will be as numerous as the sand of the sea. 
And that through him he would make a kingdom that would go on forever, an everlasting kingdom. And through Abraham's people would come blessing to the whole world. And so God's people, Israel, God's chosen people, largely reject the Messiah. And this is a problem for people who look at the evidence. Someone would look at the situation and say, okay, well, is this as though the word of God has failed? Has, has God not fulfilled his promise? Has he failed to deliver? And Paul says, no, no. First of all, no, of course not. But then no, here's the evidence why. Because God's salvation, God's working out his promises is ultimately not going to be realized through the ethnic people traced through Abraham, but through the people who are bound together by a promise and by spiritual life. And so in order to make this point, he zeroes in, Paul zeroes in on one specific family. He will later zoom back out in Romans chapter 11, but he zooms in on one particular family in order to make this point. He says uh, that, let me show you, the people who are God's people are the people of the promise. These are the ones who fulfill the covenant promises of God, the ones who believe, the ones who are given this spiritual life through the working of God. So he zeroes in on Isaac and his sons, Jacob and Esau. The point in doing this is so that Paul can show this is not something according to the flesh or an earthly standing before men. For if any two people would be in the same boat, it would be two children born of the same father and born into the same family. It would be brothers who are born at the same time. Moreover, if, any, if either of the two were to receive preference, it would have been the one that was born first. But rather, as the situation plays out, what do we read? The older serves the younger Why? It's according to God's decree and God's choice. And so what we learn is that election is completely according to God's decision. It is God's prerogative. So if you want to understand election, the first thing that you need to do is you need to understand election in the context of God being a sovereign God. You need to square with that reality. And people who who struggle with the doctrine of election need to stand back, need to look at all of Scripture, creator and creature, is the reality of God, the reality of man. Have you squared with the fact that God truly is sovereign? You need to understand it in the context of God as the sovereign God. Election is not according to earthly standing, and especially election is not according to God's looking down the corridors of time and seeing who it is that would believe, or seeing who it is that would obey him, and then he elects them based on his knowledge of the future, he appoints them to eternal life. That's not what election is. We read the words of Augustine, early church father. He said, God elected believers, but he chose them that that, that they might be that they might be believers, not because they were already so. Neither are we called because we believed, but that we may believe. And by that calling which is without repentance, it is effected and carried through that we should believe. The Westminster Confession of Faith says it this way. We read our Belgian Confession. Here's the way 
our Presbyterian brothers put it. Those of mankind that are predestined unto life, God before the foundation of the world, uh, God before the foundation of the world was laid, according to his eternal and unchangeable purpose, and the secret counsel and good pleasure of his will, hath chosen in Christ unto everlasting glory, out of his free grace and love, without any foresight of faith or good works, or perseverance, or any other thing in the creature, as conditions or causes moving him thereunto and all to the praise of his glorious grace. Why does God give us the doctrine of election? For the praise of his glorious grace, so that we would stand in awe of what he does, so that we would stand in awe of him and, because, and so that we would worship him as a sovereign God. So we read in Romans 9, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. This is the sovereign God. Verse 16 says, It does not therefore depend on man's desire or man's effort. Salvation does not depend on man's desire. It does not depend on man's effort, but on the God who has mercy. And this brings us to the the biggest point that we need to understand if, if we grasp and if we accept the idea of a sovereign God who rules. It is left to God to ordain all of the things in this world in order to glorify and magnify and exalt his name. It's left to God to do that in order to magnify and exalt his own name. It it is his decision to use his creation in order to bring about the magnifying and the exaltation of his name. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. We exist for him. Paul uses the example of Pharaoh, a great and powerful king. Uh, Most of the pharaohs claimed deity for themselves. They, They saw themselves as gods. But God brought this so-called God, Pharaoh, to the lowest point of weakness. He was brought to his knees by a tiny and an insignificant people on the face of the earth. People of Israel enslaved to him. And why did God do that? Why did God use, intervene in that situation and use that situation to, and, and humble Pharaoh in that way to make his power and his glory known on the earth? We read in the book of Exodus that God actually hardened the heart of Pharaoh in order that he would change his mind time and time again. If you read the story, he, he's about to let the people go, but then God hardens his heart and he pulls his people back. And each and every time Pharaoh does that, God's power is displayed a little bit more. The weakness of Pharaoh is is shown a little bit more. By the end of the story, everyone knows who the true God is. It's the God of Israel. The God of Israel is the true God. His power and his glory are made known through that situation with Pharaoh. But then the retort comes back, okay, so then why, how, how does God still find judgment in, in anyone, how, how can he make a true and a just judgment if God is sovereign over all things? How could he still find fault with Pharaoh? How could he still find fault with anyone? And to ask that question is to, to wade into deep waters. To wade into deep waters. And whenever we consider the, the doctrine of election, we have to understand that in all the, the things of God, that he condescends to us in human language and his thoughts are above human language. Whatever understanding we have is going to be imperfect and it's going to be 
incomplete. So to ask that question is to wade into deep waters, but the Apostle Paul knows that. And yet, as we go and we read Scripture, we see that even though God is sovereign, human beings are still responsible. Human beings have agency. Human beings are still held accountable for their decisions, still responsible for the things that they do, yet all things are shaped by God's decree to the praise of his glorious grace. But Paul gets even more direct in this passage. In Romans 9, as he lays all that out, he says, Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Who are you to talk back to God? And and that is exactly what we need to hear. That is exactly the kind of truth that flies in the face of our society, of our culture, and that our minds need to be transformed and reformed around that truth that man cannot answer back, talk back to God. He is the potter. We are the clay. We do not have the right to say to him, you should not have made me like this. This grates against the sovereign self. It shows why our, hostile, our age is hostile to the truth of God. And so be renewed in this truth tonight. Let your mind soak up that truth. Let your mind soak up the words of Paul when he says, who would a man be to answer back to God? We must understand election in the context of God's sovereignty. That because of who he is, he has every right to unfold things in this manner. And we also need to understand that because our understanding is imperfect, because it's always going to be incomplete, that we cannot pry into some of these matters with excessive curiosity. Rather, we take the words of God, we take what he reveals to us. You know, the bumper sticker, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. That actually has one too many steps, right? God said it, that settles it. God is God, we are not. So we need not pry into these things with excessive curiosity. John Calvin had a nice phrase that is good to hold on to. He said, rather than being concerned about apprehending doctrines like this, we need to adore God through them. It's not so much about apprehending, it is about adoring. Understand election in the context of the sovereign God. Secondly, understand election in the context of sin. Understand election in the context of sin. By this I mean to say that without God's effectual intervening into the process of redemption, all of us would have stayed completely dead in our sin and our condemnation, would have had no hope for salvation without God's intervention. Jesus teaches us this clearly in John chapter 6. John chapter 6, all that the Father gives me will come to me. There's There's a giving from the Father to the Son. And as Jesus is teaching all of these things in John chapter 6, people are saying, this is strange teaching. This is, this is difficult to grasp. And more and more people are rejecting the teaching of Jesus as he is unfolding all of these things. And then he makes the point even clearer when he says, John 6, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. So there you have from the very beginning 
of history. Even before the foundations of the earth were laid, you have the mind of God, the decree of God, and then enacted in time, the father drawing unto the son, and then glorification, and I will raise him up on the last day. The same number that was in the mind of God when he appointed them to eternal life in eternity past is going to be the same exact number that is raised up on the last day when Jesus comes again. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Jesus couldn't be any clearer. This word for draw is an interesting word. We, we, we tend to think it's a bit of like a, a soft wooing. But this word for draw actually means to, to drag, to haul, uh, to pull. So the Father pulls people to Christ, and Jesus' point is that without that intervention, no one would come to him otherwise. Without that drawing, that dragging of the Father, no one would come to saving faith in Christ. And the reason is our sin and our corruption, because we are dead in our sin and our corruption outside of the intervention of God. The Canons of Dort summarize it this way. Therefore, all people are conceived in sin and are born children of wrath, unfit for any saving good, inclined to evil, dead in their sins, and slaves to sin. Without the grace of the regenerating Holy Spirit, they are neither willing nor able to return to God, to reform their distorted nature, or even to dispose themselves to such reform. Ephesians 2 says we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God being rich in mercy because the great love with which he loved us made us alive together with Christ. That's the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. That's God dragging us, dragging us from our estate of sin and misery and into an estate of salvation as we are represented by our Redeemer. So we're taught not only how desperately we need God to intervene, but it also teaches us about those who remain forever in their sin and their condemnation. We see a little bit of the difference between election and reprobation. And as our confession says that God is pleased in his eternal counsel and in his eternal wisdom. He is pleased to pass over some and to leave them in their perdition and in their sin and in their fallen state. To the praise of his glorious grace. And to the praise of his glorious justice. He shows himself in election that he is a God who is merciful. He is a God who forgives. And he also shows us that he is a God who is just. Both are to the praise of his glorious grace. And the magnification of his name. When we understand election in the context of sin. And without God's intervention we would have been hopeless. Two pastoral implications that we might draw out. The first is humility. If we understand election in the context of sin. Without God's intervening I'm left dead in my sin. Without God's intervening I have no hope. Coming to Christ he did not see anything good in me. He did not see the fact that I would respond or believe in and of myself. He did not see good works. He chose me freely of his own volition if we realize that we will be humbled while all our hearts and all our songs join to admire the feast each of us cries with thankful tongues lord why was i a guest why was i made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room when thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come to know election is to be humbled before the grace of God. We begin to understand 
that he is our help, that he is our hope, that we need to hope only in his steadfast love, we begin to understand why it's so, so important that we hear our help is in the name of the Lord, the maker of the heavens and the earth. Eternal election is the starting point of seeing all of salvation as the work of God. So we are humbled to see the maker of heaven and earth appoint his elect to eternal life. But then also we are filled with assurance. We are filled with assurance. And especially we are filled with assurance when uh, we have a tender conscience. And and we're looking at our lives and, and we're saying... It doesn't seem like a lot of the realities I read about in scripture, like a lot of those things are being enacted in my life. I'm struggling with this or I'm struggling with that. Eternal election fills us with assurance because God never fails in what he does. And God, his purposes are always fulfilled from beginning to end. So if you doubt your salvation because of a tender conscience... Remember the election of God from all eternity. Continue to hold on to Christ in faith, for your faith is a part of your assurance as well. Cling to Jesus, hold on to him, and remember that God does not elect people based on works. God does not not save you because of your works. God is perfect in all that he does, and he never fails. And that's really why the doctrine of election ultimately was given to believers, was given to the people of God, so that we could know and be reminded that this is the work of God. And it's for our comfort. It's not for us to look outward to the world and say, there's the whole I'm in and you're out mentality. It's to comfort and to assure us. We need to understand election in the context of sin. And then thirdly, we need to understand election in the context of God's love. We need to understand election in the context of God's love. We have considered why we must understand it in the light of God's sovereignty. Secondly, our sin. And then finally, God's love. Perhaps you wonder why we would go to God's love in order to better understand Election. Well, if you, if you combine the first two points, that God is completely sovereign, that he has the right to mold the clay in whatever way he chooses, and if our sinfulness renders us completely helpless in achieving the, the merit we need before God, then the fact that God, out of his mere good pleasure and love for his creatures, elected us to salvation, it makes our hearts sing for joy and love this God and be grateful To this God. This is the wonder that we see in Deuteronomy chapter 7. God is speaking to his people that he chose, Israel. He says, I chose you not because you were stronger, not because you were more powerful, not because you were better, not because you were richer than other other nations, but because I loved you. I chose you because I loved you. I loved you because I loved you. He says to his people, I loved you because. I love you. And so we see that God prizes his people. We see that God loves his people whom he has made his own. Like a shepherd prizes his flock, like a bridegroom prizes his bride, like a king prizes his crown, so the Lord prizes his people. His love was not compelled, but he chose to love us freely and of his own will. It was not because of anything he saw in us, but only for his own pleasure in glorifying himself through us. 
He chose to do this as the God who makes no wrong choices, who always acts with the deepest and most profound wisdom. In election, God says, I love you. I love you. He loved us before the foundations of the earth and appointed us to eternal life. Two applications of this clear ones are our joy and worship. To be prized by the God of the universe is to be filled with joy, to know and to understand that and, and to allow your mind to, to be shaped by that truth and to allow that to, to sink down into your heart, to know uh, that God prizes you and he loves you is to be filled with joy. And secondly, worship. Worship. To know the God of the heavens and the earth and to know that he has elected and appointed a people to eternal life before the foundations of the earth. To know that he loves you and that he prizes you not only to be filled with joy but to be filled with a a, a passion and a desire to worship him and to glorify him and to magnify his name all of your days. Knowing that without his intervention you would have no hope. Knowing that you you needed that electing grace. You needed that sovereign power in order to give you spiritual life. Humility, assurance, joy, and worship. If you want to understand election, you need to understand is the action of a sovereign God. You need to understand it in the context of sin. And you need to understand it in the context of God's love. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would impress these truths deeply upon our hearts and that we would take this truth and that we would know it, that we would treasure it, and that we would hold these doctrines as so important for our own life that you would fill us with humility and assurance, joy, and and a heart that wants to worship you because of this truth. Pray these all, all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.